Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Today's show features a discussion of the current state of marijuana policy in the U.S., including medical and recreational use, regulatory issues, and recent Trump administration actions. With me in the studio to offer his expertise on the matter is John Hudak, a senior fellow in governance studies here at Brookings and deputy director of the Center for Effective Public Management. His 2016 book, Marijuana, A Short History, offers a unique profile of how cannabis emerged from the shadows to become a serious mainstream public policy issue. And you can listen to an episode of this show from February 2017, in which John talked about this book with my colleague Bill Finan of the Brookings Institution Press. Also on today's show, senior fellow and Korea expert Jung Pak answers a student's question about North Korea, and in our coffee break segment, meet Frank Rose, one of our new senior fellows in the foreign policy program, who focuses on nuclear strategy, technology, and deterrence. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now on with the interview. John, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. Fred, great to be back. So this episode is releasing on Friday, April 20th, 420, and that number has a certain significance in the marijuana community. Can you talk about what that is? Sure. The date 420 has sort of an odd significance in the marijuana community in the sense that nobody really knows where it sources. There's a lot of rumor and a lot of ideas about where the source comes from. But ultimately, regardless of that history, it is in many ways an international cannabis holiday. It coincides with rallies and festivals and events and speaking engagements and a variety of other things that commemorate what is a social movement that has existed for decades, but over the past 20 years has had remarkable success in changing policy. That's right. It's a serious public policy issue now. You've been at the forefront in researching and explaining what all the policy issues are. So let's take a dive into those matters. Can you provide an update on the landscape of medical marijuana laws around the country and then the recreational state? There have been some changes over the past year, the last 420 anniversary, in that more states have expanded medical cannabis. We now have 30 states and D.C. with mainstream, large-scale medical cannabis laws. And within those states, there have uh, been changes. Just last week, in fact, a regulatory body in Pennsylvania approved the sale, production and sale of whole flower marijuana rather than just oils, which the state was previously using. There have been, as I said, new states that have come online that have expanded the number of individuals who live in states with medical programs, but also within those states, the number of conditions that qualify have expanded in many places to include things like PTSD. Those are significant steps for the medical community. On the recreational side, 2016 saw four new states add to the growing list of states with recreational marijuana. They are Massachusetts, Maine, California, and Nevada. But this year, earlier this year in January, Vermont became the first state to legalize recreational marijuana through the legislature. All of the other eight states plus D.C. did that through ballot initiative, but Vermont created a legal home grow system, not a commercial market, but a home grow system, and their legislature approved it, and the governor signed that bill. Now, in all of these states, oh, I think it's worth mentioning, these are state-level laws. And one of the main things that you've talked about is that they conflict with federal law. 
Can you kind of talk about the tension between the two right there? Yeah, courts have been clear that when it comes to drug policy, the federal government has the power to regulate in this space. And the federal government has been clear about marijuana. It is an illegal substance in all cases. It's a Schedule One drug, meaning that the federal government believes it to have no medical value, that it can't be used safely in medical procedures in the United States, and that it has a high tendency for abuse. That said, while the federal government has been fairly clear on this issue, so too have states. States have moved forward and said that the war on drugs has failed, uh, that it is making communities less safe. It is disproportionately impacting communities of color, and they have moved to legalize at the state level in defiance of federal law. Let's stick on medical marijuana for a few more minutes. You have been involved with a family in Virginia, the Collins family, and along with our colleague George Burroughs, a videographer and director here in communications, have just released a documentary about medical marijuana. It premiered recently in Los Angeles at an event with Variety Magazine. So congratulations on that. Thank you. It's a wonderful video. People can watch it on our website. Can you just briefly tell the story of the Collins family and their journey in this medical marijuana field? The Collins family is both an interesting situation in terms of public policy and a very common situation for public policy. The Collins family is a family of four, a mother, a father, and two daughters, and one of the daughters, Jennifer, has intractable epilepsy. That is epilepsy that is not well managed by traditional pharmaceuticals. Jen has spent most of her life with an epilepsy disorder that has been difficult to deal with, difficult to manage. She's been on dozens of pharmaceuticals that have not helped, and in many cases they have come with significant side effects. Jen is one of tens or hundreds of thousands of individuals who suffer these same sorts of health challenges with epilepsy uh, and joins really an army of many more people who have conditions that standard pharmaceuticals tend not to help or standard pharmaceuticals come with really unwanted side effects that can be quite severe. And so along the way, Jen's parents had read online about parents who have children with epilepsy who were using products derived from cannabis. And at first, they found this to be foolish. They weren't willing to give their daughter marijuana. She was young, and it just sounded silly to them. But the more they read up on it, the more they realized that people were actually getting help. And the documentary tells their story, which, as I said, is one story among hundreds of thousands of stories in this space about people just looking for other options. And in some cases, those options are different pharmaceuticals. In some cases, those options are different types of alternative medicine. In the case of the Collins, like many others, that option was medical cannabis. Unfortunately for the Collins family at the time, when they first discovered that this might be something that could help, they lived in Virginia where these products were illegal. And so they had to split their family up and move to Colorado where these types of medicines were not only available, but available for children. And it tells their story about both the challenges that they faced personally as a family, but also the challenges that they faced because of public policy, because of state-level policies, because of federal-level policies, and the result has been something that is a situation that's really anti-family, anti-medicine, and a scenario, like I said, that Jen experienced along with dozens and hundreds of families like hers and really hundreds of thousands of patients like her. 
Yeah, it's a really powerful piece, and I encourage listeners to find it on our website and watch it. In the documentary, you call the status quo in medical marijuana untenable. So why is it untenable? Well, it's untenable because we have a situation in this country where states are moving forward with reforms that they see as prudent. They are creating regulatory systems around medical cannabis and around recreational cannabis, and those stand in defiance of federal law. Meanwhile, the federal government is largely turning a blind eye to these reforms. In the case of recreational marijuana, if states are regulating those systems, the Department of Justice has largely taken a hands-off approach. It was true under the Obama administration, and so far it has been true under the Trump administration, with some exceptions. In the case of medical marijuana, Congress has actually forbidden the Department of Justice from spending funds on enforcing federal-level medical marijuana laws against companies and individuals who are complying with state laws. And so that creates a scenario in which there are a lot of gray areas. But in terms of allowing states to move forward with these programs, the federal government has done an okay job in doing that. But it hasn't solved the numerous other policy challenges that pop up around things like taxes and banking and interstate access. And something as simple as having medicine, having medical marijuana in one state and deciding to go on vacation. It's illegal to cross state lines. It's even illegal to cross state lines between two states that have legal programs. And so... While the federal government has put a Band-Aid over this policy wound, the wound still exists and it's really not healing. In last October, the former Veterans Affairs Secretary David Shulkin told Democratic members of the House Affairs Committee that federal law restricts the VA's ability to conduct research involving medical marijuana. And you said, basically, that former Secretary Shulkin lied to Congress about medical marijuana. How so? So he absolutely did lie to Congress when he said that federal law restricted the VA from conducting research. There is a research exception in our laws for conducting medical experiments and medical studies on cannabis. There is nothing that stops any accredited institution from studying this product, or I should say stopping them from studying it, including the VA. Now, there are restrictions in place that make it difficult, that can complicate the ability of an institution to do this work, but no one is really forbidden from doing this work. So Secretary Shulkin, the day after this spat, shall we call it, went public, recognized that he needed to backtrack. And the day after my report came out, he was questioned on this in the United States Senate. And he said that actually it was just that there was a lot of bureaucracy standing between VA and their ability to conduct research on medical marijuana, which for me isn't really a good answer if you're trying to get veterans well and your answer is, sorry, we can't help you out because there's too much bureaucracy in the way. I don't think most Americans and especially most veterans would consider that a respectable answer. I'll also point out to listeners that they can read your response to the former secretary's response on our website, kind of a point-by-point analysis. One of the interesting things that you observed in your analysis is that whereas the secretary cited some studies that showed negative effects of cannabis use, you pointed out that the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine have a study about the health effects of cannabis and cannabinoids in the current state of the evidence. Can you talk about where the evidence is on 
the efficacy of marijuana-derived products on some of these big issues that we've been talking about, PTSD, opioid addiction, and epilepsy? Sure. We have some pretty solid evidence that cannabis can help with things like chronic pain, that it can help with epilepsy disorders. In fact, there's drug right now in stage three trials through FDA that uses a natural cannabis extract to treat epilepsy disorders. We have pretty good evidence with regard to those two conditions. With regard to other conditions, there is mixed evidence. And part of that is that some studies will show that there is no impact, there is no medical efficacy for cannabis. Others will show that there is a benefit. But it all points to a problem not necessarily with cannabis, but with government standing in the way of researchers being able to do research on that. Because of government policies, cannabis research has been set back decades. And until the federal government loosens restrictions, which it has done in very slight ways over the past few years, it is going to make it harder for researchers to do this work. And the taboo around doing work in this space will continue. Is a lot of that taboo tied to the fact that marijuana is a Schedule One drug under the DEA's classification? That's part of it. I think doing research on medical efficacy of Schedule One drugs always comes with taboos. For instance, there's research being done right now on the use of MDMA uh, for use with veterans with PTSD. That is controversial. MDMA, a psychedelic, is a Schedule One drug. It's illegal in all circumstances in the U.S., but there are some researchers who believe it can help in a very controlled therapeutic setting. But that research is plagued by those types of taboos. And so we face those realities, unfortunately, when medicine gets politicized by culture and by society, when in reality, these doctors should be able to do this research in the same way that they would do research on a cholesterol statin or a heart disease medication. And it's my understanding that there's only one research facility in the country that provides marijuana for research purposes. It's in Mississippi. That's right. The University of Mississippi has a farm, and that farm grows cannabis. And it is the only source of legal research-grade cannabis that doctors and other researchers can use in their work. So if you are, let's say, a medical researcher at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and you get approved to do research, you can't call a grower in Colorado who produces medical marijuana and say, hey, I need four pounds of this strain and three pounds of that strain to do my work that's been approved by the federal government. You have to contract with Olmis and this grow operation there in order to get that product. All other product would be considered illegal to use in that research. Now, in August of 2016, the Obama administration announced that they would begin entertaining new licenses to grow research-grade cannabis. Dozens of applications went in to DEA to get approved to grow research-grade cannabis, and so far not a single one has been approved. And now, ask an expert. Here's a question I got from Stuart Luckman, a junior at Shawnee Heights High School in Kansas. Stuart Luckman, is there a possibility for tensions to de-escalate on the Korean Peninsula? 
Thanks, Stuart, for that question. This is Jung Pak. I'm a senior fellow in the SK Korea Foundation Chair for Korea Studies at Brookings Institution. I really appreciated your question, Stuart, because it's an excellent one. Actually, things have de-escalated in the past several months. If you remember last fall and winter, we had a series of rhetorical exchanges or warfare, as you might want to put it, between the U.S. president and Kim Jong-un as North Korea launched or test-launched a series of missiles and also conducted its largest nuclear test ever. But since 2018, things have cooled down quite a bit as soon as Kim Jong-un, in his New Year's address, said that he was willing to improve relations with South Korea. And that jump-started a whole series of summits in that we can actually call this a summit spring of sorts. Since the New Year's speech in January, we have seen that the South Koreans and the North Koreans are talking about having a summit between President Moon of South Korea and Kim Jong-un from North Korea. Discussions are ongoing. There is a planned U.S.-North Korea summit in late May or early June. Kim Jong-un has already met with the Chinese President Xi a few weeks ago. So we have had a series of engagements with North Korea that we have not seen in the first seven years of Kim's rule when he came to power in December of 2011. That said, just because things have de-escalated and things have moved toward engagement rather than the locked and loaded fire and fury comments from last fall, we still don't have a resolution to the North Korea issue. For as long as North Korea has nuclear weapons, we are going to be in this continuous state of uneasiness with intermittent periods of confrontation with North Korea, the U.S., and our allies in the region. So while things are okay and we should embrace this era of engagement in 2018, we should also be mindful that North Korea continues to have nuclear weapons, continues to threaten the U.S. and its neighbors, particularly South Korea and Japan, and that the fact that it has nuclear weapons creates a proliferation concern, the worry that North Korea will sell its ballistic missiles or its nuclear technology to bad actors, which is why the U.S. has been calling for the denuclearization of North Korea. So until this issue is resolved, and this is a particularly thorny issue, complicated, that has lasted for decades, so the upcoming meetings with the Inter-Korean Summit and the planned U.S.-North Korea Summit, we should be hopeful and optimistic um, that something comes out of these meetings, but we should also be very realistic in that North Korea has yet to provide any concessions on its nuclear weapons program, and that so far we have just had words and promises. Thanks, Stuart. My thanks to Jung Pak for participating in Ask an Expert, and thank you, Stuart, for sending in that very excellent question. You can learn more about North Korea policy with Jung Pak's essay, The Education of Kim Jong-un, on our website. Let's focus a little bit more on the Trump administration's policies, especially recently. Attorney General Jeff Sessions seems to be at odds with some of the things that then-candidate Donald Trump said on the campaign trail. And you wrote a piece in January about Jeff Sessions 
reversing federal marijuana policy and why he's wrong to do that. Can you address some of what has been happening lately from the Trump administration with regards to marijuana policy, both on the medical side and the recreational side? So to back up, during President Obama's second term, an assistant attorney general named Jim Cole issued a memorandum to states that have reformed their cannabis laws, both for medical and for recreational use. And what it said was the federal government would take a hands-off approach in states that have reformed their laws if they create a robust regulatory system and make sure that companies are not engaging in other bad activities like selling to children, selling across state lines, being involved with drug cartels, et cetera. And that gave states a little bit of breathing room in terms of operating, knowing that the feds were not going to come in and do a crackdown unless they were violating the spirit of this memorandum. And for a lot of states and cannabis companies, they found this to be welcomed. They want to be honest operators. They want to exist in a regulatory system. And that was working quite well. There were still crackdowns because there are still bad actors, and the system moved forward. In January of 2018, Jeff Sessions decided to rescind that Cole memo, which ultimately the Cole memo told federal prosecutors, United States attorneys, not to prosecute cases that fell under this heading. What the attorney general did was essentially released U.S. attorneys, released federal prosecutors from that restriction and said, you can prosecute these cases if you choose to. This was worrisome to the industry because, A, it meant that there was now a new target on the backs of any state legal recreational marijuana producer or distributor, and that the attorney general, the guy at the helm, is an avowed drug warrior, someone who has said some very offensive things about marijuana users and very factually incorrect things about the drug itself. Ultimately, those crackdowns have not come, in part because they would be expensive and time-consuming and involve a lot of man hours, but also because the U.S. attorneys in those states understand that they need to work well with state government actors and with state law enforcement in order to carry out their own operations. It's important to note the federal government cannot require a state law enforcement official to enforce federal law. So if DEA wanted to shut down all of the grow operations in California, let's say, they could go to California and they could ask local police departments, hey, can you help us shut down these legal regulated businesses? Those police officers can say, no, go do it yourself. There might be some who would help, but I think many of them would say, no, you can go do it yourself, which increases the challenge for the federal government. And that reality has, I think, held up the ability of Jeff Sessions to achieve what he wants to do, and that is to make marijuana illegal everywhere and to make sure that that is enacted in the states. Well, despite this policy attitude from the attorney general, you've observed and you've used the term that there is an industry growing, to use a bad pun, around medical marijuana and recreational marijuana right here in D.C. as seen in the documentary film and in other places around the country. But that industry is constrained by all of these policy and regulatory issues that you cited. So one issue that I've come across, and I'm not sure if it's a real issue yet, but it's just something that I think is interesting, is that if all of these regulatory issues were resolved and marijuana becomes basically legal for recreational and medical use, 
know, what happens in terms of the industry? I've heard that maybe the big tobacco companies are looking at that and maybe they're waiting to jump in to take over the marijuana industry because they've lost so much on the tobacco side. Is that something that is on the horizon? There are a lot of rumors about what will happen to the industry if and when federal legalization happens. There are rumors that big tobacco is waiting in the wings to step in. There are rumors that big alcohol, if you want to call it that, is looking to step in. Large alcohol companies have made moves in Canada to invest in cannabis companies there. We haven't seen it at that kind of scale in the United States. But that is something that I think is possible. You know, businesses operating freely see opportunities and try to capitalize on them. Alcohol has a lot of experience dealing with an intoxicating substance that's sold nationwide and is subject to unique rules at the state level. Tobacco is familiar with growing a product that is a plant that's then used and smoked oftentimes or vaped in ways to achieve some sort of outcome of different one than marijuana. But one nonetheless, what will happen after legalization happens? There will certainly be conglomeration in the United States. Big businesses will displace smaller businesses. It's happening in a lot of states already without national legalization. There's a reality with cannabis. It is the capital-intensive product. Capital-intensive products tend to perform better in companies that are operating at scale. It's harder to operate a mom-and-pop business that requires tens of thousands of dollars in electric bills and sometimes water being shipped in and a human capital-intensive product as well. So, yeah, there will be conglomeration. There will be buyouts. There will be consolidation in ways that we've seen in other markets. But it's not to say that we're going to have, you know, three or four marijuana companies in the United States running the entire show. But the idea that post-legalization, every mom and pop business is going to be functioning the same is a myth as well. Let me ask you about a recent report that you've co-authored with Jeff Ramsey and John Walsh of the uh, Washington Office for Latin America on Uruguay's cannabis laws. It's the first country in the world to legalize and regulate its domestic non-medical cannabis market. Are there some lessons to be learned in terms of these questions, especially about what big business is going to do from the experience in Uruguay? Uruguay is a very interesting case. As you noted, it's the first country to legalize recreational marijuana nationwide. I think a lot of people believe the Netherlands did, but the Netherlands coffee shops are actually operating illegally, and the production of cannabis for those shops is done in a very hush-hush way. It is still an illegal substance in the Netherlands. It is not in Uruguay. Uruguay has set up a system that is very strictly controlled and one that does not reflect what a legal market would look like in the United States. In Uruguay, there are two growers who are government approved and contract with the government. They produce cannabis. And cannabis, even though it is non-medical, is actually sold in pharmacies in Uruguay. There are three ways to access legal marijuana in Uruguay. You can grow it at home or you can belong to a cannabis co-op, a cannabis club, or you can buy from the commercial market through pharmacies. You have to register with the state to get cannabis from one of those three forms, and you can't commingle. That is, you cannot get cannabis from multiple of those three. The price is set at a fairly low rate. The amount that you can purchase per month is fixed. 
the amount that an individual pharmacy can sell per month is fixed. And so it is a heavily regulated, heavily restrictive system that I think runs into challenges in terms of the ability of those businesses to function and remain solvent. But the goal of this reform was to displace a black market for a product that was largely coming in from Paraguay, a product called either pasta base or pranzado, and it's a pressed marijuana product that can be quite intense. And so far, Uruguay has seen a significant increase in the number of people registering with the state to access legal cannabis. And their hope is over time, they'll be able to displace that black market in significant ways. Well, then looking ahead for the United States, what are some of the specific policy changes that you think should occur in this country? And what do you expect will happen in this country? There are a lot of policy changes that need to happen in order for federal policy to keep pace with state policy and for federal policy to reflect public opinion. Right now, more than 60% of Americans support legal, regulated recreational marijuana reform at the federal level. About 70% of Americans believe that the federal government should not stand in the way of states that choose to reform their recreational marijuana laws. And about 90% of Americans support medical marijuana. What the federal government needs to do if it's truly willing to deal with this situation and take this on as a serious policy. And frankly, if the federal government wants to do what the president of the United States stated on the campaign trail that he was committed to, and that was a legalization of medical marijuana and a respect for state recreational marijuana laws, would be to allow for a relaxation of federal restrictions in states that have chosen to reform their laws. The federal government doesn't need to legalize cannabis nationwide, or at least it doesn't need to legalize cannabis nationwide to deal with some of the problems that exist in states. What it can say is, listen, we have tax restrictions, we have banking restrictions, we have interstate commerce restrictions that exist. Those can be relaxed if a state chooses to reform its laws. If a state chooses not to reform its laws, then it can exist in the same legal environment that we have now. But I think it's challenging for a business in California not to be able to write off most of the types of deductions that a standard business would be entitled to simply because it is growing or selling cannabis under the state regulatory model. In addition to that, many companies are unable to get access to banking, even for simple checking or savings accounts. And the basis for that is anti-money laundering laws. But what that does is it creates a cash-only business, which only makes money laundering all that much easier. If you are a medical patient in Las Vegas and you decide to take a vacation to Los Angeles, even though those are two states with medical and recreational marijuana programs, you cannot bring product with you from Las Vegas to Los Angeles. You'd be crossing a state border. That's a silly premise. You should be able to bring medicine with you if you are a registered legal medical marijuana patient. And so there are ways to what people like Mark Kleiman and others have argued are guardrails. That is, you set up these regulatory boundaries that exist where the federal government steps in and says, here is what we are comfortable with from a regulatory perspective. 
and you essentially have an opt-in system. States are not required to do these things. They are not required to legalize marijuana for medical or recreational purposes. But if they choose to do that, they then get access to certain federal benefits. Well, John, I want to thank you for taking the time and sharing your expertise on this very important public policy question with us today. It's really interesting. Thank you. You can learn more about John Hudak and his research on our website, brookings.edu, where you can also watch the new documentary film, The Life She Deserves. Now in our coffee break, meet new senior fellow, Frank Rose. My name is Frank Rose. I'm a senior scholar or a senior fellow for security and strategy in the foreign policy program here at Brookings, and I do it because I love it. It's my passion. Well, I grew up in southeastern Massachusetts in the 70s and the 80s, originally from Plymouth, Massachusetts. I moved to Washington in 1990 to attend college at American University, but I still have a lot of family up in Massachusetts, and I try to get up there a couple times a year. It's a great place, especially in the summer. Well, what inspired me to become a scholar? That's an interesting question. As many who are listening to this podcast probably know, I spent a good part of my career in government working national and international security issues, both at the State Department, the Defense Department, but also on Capitol Hill. My government career came to an end in January of 2017, but I still had a passion to participate in the debate and help develop good public policy solutions. And Brookings has such a great reputation and plays such an important role in the debate here in Washington and across the world. I thought this would be a good platform for me to continue to help influence the debate. How did I find myself in government work? You know, I always had a passion, even when I was young, to be involved in international security. I've been very lucky that way. Some people go throughout their entire careers and they don't know what they want to do. When I was very young, I knew I wanted to play a role in the government at the Defense Department, at the State Department, or another government agency. I began my career in the early 90s working as a low-level legislative aide to a little-known senator from Massachusetts by the name of John Kerry. And from there, I worked for a private contractor called Science Applications International Corporation. They had a lot of contracts with the Defense Department. Then I went to London for a year and got my master's in war studies which is a very, very British way of describing defense studies or strategic studies. And then I came back in late 1999, worked at the Pentagon for about seven years, both as an assistant to one of the assistant secretaries of defense responsible for strategic issues, and then for five years in the Missile Defense Policy Office, where I was responsible for coordinating missile defense cooperation with our allies in Europe. 
Then I did a couple of stints on Capitol Hill working on the House Intelligence Committee and the House Armed Services Committee. And then when President Obama was elected, I went to the State Department first as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Space and Defense Policy and then eventually as Assistant Secretary for Arms Control, Verification, and Compliance, where I worked on a number of issues in the strategic policy area. But I'm always asked by younger people coming into the field, you know, what should I do? And I always say, follow your passion, do what makes you happy, and things then just kind of fall into place. I remember When I was 17 years old, I was working on then-Senator John Kerry's first re-election campaign for the United States Senate. And we were at an event for volunteers. And at the end of his presentation, then-Senator Kerry asked if anyone had questions for him. And me being the bashful 17-year-old that I was, I immediately raised my hand and I asked him a question about missile defense and the anti-ballistic missile treaty. 25 years later, Secretary Kerry, when he was swearing me in as assistant secretary, the assistant secretary responsible for missile defense, he referenced that story in his introductory speech. So it just shows you if you follow your passion and do what you enjoy, things have a way of working out. What is the most important issue we are facing today? For me, the answer to that question is the emergence of disruptive technologies, whether it be artificial intelligence, hypersonic weapons, advances in biotechnology, etc., etc. I think what we are seeing over the past several years, if not decades, is how these new technologies are fundamentally changing the way we live, work, and conduct conflict. So from my perspective, the emergence of these technologies is truly one of the challenges that we're going to be facing for many years to come. And I think technology is only going to continue to expand and become more disruptive as we move forward. Well, I'm working on a couple of projects. I like to say I have four or five baskets of projects. The first basket deals with the intersection between deterrence and arms control. If you look throughout the history of deterrence and arms control, especially during the Cold War, arms control and deterrence were tightly linked. But since the end of the Cold War, they have gone on divergent paths. One of the questions I'm trying to answer is how do we bring back and recouple deterrence and arms control? The second issue is related to that, and that's the future of the U.S.-Russia strategic stability framework. Since the end of the 1980s and early 1990s, that framework had been focused on negotiating reductions in our nuclear arsenals. My main concern is that reductions process has come to an end. 
I think it's unlikely that there will be a successor to the new START treaty that focuses on reducing the numbers of nuclear weapons. At the same time, I think it's in the interest of both the United States and the Russian Federation to have a framework in place that helps us manage competition and also reduce the risk of nuclear war. So that's the second project. The third project or basket of issues I'm focused on is the issue of global strategic stability. Where in the Cold War, it was the United States and the Soviet Union that really drove the global strategic stability discussion. Now, in the environment we find ourselves in, there are some other actors like China, India, and Pakistan that are influencing the discussion. And more importantly, there are new technologies such as cyber, space, and artificial intelligence that are also impacting calculations associated with global strategic stability. So, you know, trying to figure out how we maintain a stable global strategic balance with these new actors and new technologies is kind of the third basket. The fourth basket is related to the third basket, and that is with these new technologies, are there rules of the road or norms of behavior we can use to help manage those on an international basis? And then finally, the United States is at the beginning of modernizing its strategic nuclear forces. We have not done this in 30 years, and it's important that we have a bipartisan consensus amongst Democrats and Republicans because this modernization program will go on for the next 20 years. Therefore, the question we're trying to answer is how do we maintain a bipartisan consensus in favor of the modernization of U.S. strategic nuclear forces at a time of great polarization. If I were to recommend a book to our listeners, it would actually be two books. The first would be a book written by my colleague in Brookings Foreign Policy, and that is All Measures Short of War by Thomas Wright. Quite frankly, it is the best book on international politics that I have read over the past several years. I think Tom does a very nice job at outlining the fundamental changes that we have seen and explaining why we're at the end of the post-Cold War international order that came into being in the early 1990s. And he lays out, I think, a very credible thesis on how we manage the return of great power competition. The second book that I would recommend is Edward Luce's book, The Retreat of Western Liberalism. And what Ed articulates in his book is many of these populist uprisings we're seeing across the Western world, they're all interrelated. And it's a result of a number of things, according to Ed Luce. One is slow growth in Western economies. But secondly, coming back to the point that I raised a little bit earlier, the rise of disruptive technologies such as automation. And that is taking away opportunities for robust employment by a 
large chunk of the middle class. Thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher, to producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna, to Bill Finan, who does the book interviews, and to Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser for design and web support. And finally, thanks to Camila Ramirez and David Nassar for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. If you go to Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.